Two of my uncles had lost their eyes, one to infection and one to shrapnel. Everybody got behind each other and spurned each other on. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The only thing I was scared of was failing, with letting down the people there that I was supposed to support. Things went south really bad. We've got to have an element of crazy to be good at what we do. There was an ego attached to being a gunfighter. I shot. Being around big, tall trees, thick shrubbery, potentially connecting to other moments in his life during battle. The story of transformation is powerful. Welcome to Life on the Line. In today's podcast, Sharon Maskell-Dare conducts two interviews with a father and a son, Dean Bretherton, a veteran of the New Zealand Air Force, and his son, Alan Bretherton, who is currently in the Middle East on operations with the Australian Army. First is Sharon's conversation with Dean. Dean served in the New Zealand Defence Force for 22 years. He spoke to Sharon about his own service and his family's deep military history. Dean, thank you very much for joining us on Life on the Line. You're welcome. So tell us a bit about your military history background. I mean, for you, when did that story begin in your family? My father was probably in between the wars, but um, his older brothers all served in World War II together with his uncles. So we certainly didn't hear a lot about it when I was growing up. But uh, later on in life, I started to ask a few more questions and uh, was definitely interested in that. Because you've made some trips over to northern France to try to trace some of that history, haven't you? So tell us a bit about some of that research that you've undertaken. I guess it was just a mild interest, which then grew as I walked around these various battlefields. I just couldn't get over the sheer scale of the carnage and also the just how weird it felt that these were no different to the paddocks that we grew potatoes in at our own home farm. Really trying to understand was it worth fighting over for all this, all these paddocks that uh, really didn't look anything that special from my perspective anyway. So you talk about growing up on a farm. So give us a bit more background there. You know, you obviously grew up in New Zealand in a farming family. It was a very small farm in a place called Wairoa between Napier and Gisborne fairly high Maori population. Probably the main industry was the meatworks for farming. And where we grew up, I left when we were seven, but it was a milking farm right on the coast. It was a good experience, but being a small town, there wasn't a lot on offer for us. And certainly uh, the military was calling me, I think, from mid-teens. And I certainly was one of my goals, I think, was to try something outside of Wairau. So you talk about the military was calling you. How did that happen then? Was it just that you got aware of the military history of your particular area or your own family? How was it that you made that decision to join the military yourself? My uncle had another farm and uh, he used to take a couple of young teenagers. As coming of age, they would go out there and work on the farm and one of those joined the military. That was primarily the reason I started asking him a few questions about it and went on from there. So what was your career? I mean, you obviously decided to join then at a fairly young age. What was that process like of going through the entry to join the military in New Zealand? And and how did you end up as an engineer? It was one of the biggest shocks of my life. Did some tests, told me to come back a year later, which I did, and they accepted me. 
Got tickets to go on a train from Moiro to Napier and then Napier to Wellington, stay overnight someplace. Caught up with a few people and then we had a few beers going across to the South Island for the first time in my life and then um, proceeded to get yelled at for walking on the grass and uh, you know that was the start of my military career. I joined up as a, a non-commissioned person, or baggy as they called them in those days, to be a, um, an aeronautical uh, engineer, a four-year course, which seemed an eternity when you're 18 years old. But it was a fantastic opportunity. Got to make some really good friends through that time. You mentioned becoming an aeronautical engineer. That's no mean achievement. That must have taken some significant study and, and academic endeavour, I imagine. It was a step up, certainly, from my education in Wairau. I would say that it wasn't an engineering degree. In those days, the focus was on having a, a technical person that had suitable additional qualifications to become a corporal within four years, which was quite an achievement. I think they used to recruit about 24 engineers, 12 aeronautical and 12 avionics, and they used to get probably two or three degree qualified people specifically for doing the calculations for some of the structures work. So I'm underscoring it a little bit, but I was certainly very honoured and in some cases grateful for the opportunity to do it. And what was it then about engineering within that aviation context that particularly drew you? What was it about that that you found fascinating and indeed that you wanted to spend your career doing? I had already taken flying lessons before I joined. Again, I'd already made a commitment a couple of years out before I joined the military that I wanted to be involved in the aviation area. I also worked a lot on cars, as you do at that time of life, always tinkering with my cousins with vehicles. It was a happy um, union between the two. And when you say tinkering with cars, though, I imagine tinkering with aircraft requires quite a different skill set. Uh, yes and no. In those days, we were doing our mechanics course on Harvards and vampires, so they were pretty old technology. And then when I completed my technicians or mechanics and technicians course, working on P3 Orions, which was the bees knees in those days. Where did your career then take you? I mean, did you get to deploy, particularly perhaps through the South Pacific region? It was an interesting time and in that there wasn't a lot of conflict on the world stage that New Zealand was committing to at that time. So the only deployments that I really did was the last RIMPAC, I think in 84, 86 in Hawaii. And I used to go to Fiji or the Cook Islands with the P3 Orions to do an engine change or a prop change to get the aircraft back. But that was the sum total of my deployments in 22 years. So tell us what it was like, you know, going out to Fiji and the Cook Islands to do that work. What were those places like at that time when you were going there on deployment? Oh, they're fantastic. I mean, any opportunity to go away with a bunch of guys. You worked hard, you played hard, had a few drinks at the end of the day. Just a good experience. And it was also a recognition of your skills and competency because they couldn't take a lot of people. So if you were going, it was basically on the recommendation of your superiors that you can do the job. What kind of work did you then find yourself doing once you were on the ground, say, in, in Fiji? I would happily lead a team, even even as a leading aircraftsman, to do a propeller change and do the engine run. So I was actually qualified as a high-power engine runner for the P3 as a, um, a leading aircraftsman. Yeah, so that was the main thing, fix it and give it back to the aircrew. 
And then after hours, what did you get to find out about the new environment you were in? Did you actually have time to get to know the local people and perhaps become quite interested in the local community? I wouldn't say it was a in-depth knowledge. I think we tried Carver and we tried the local brews and uh, we enjoyed the hospitality of the hotel area and, and made sure that we uh, got some duty-frees before we came home. That was the sum total of our cultural experience. There's often a bit of banter, isn't there, between uh, Air Force and uh, Army in that they talk about how when Air Force deploy, they get to stay in hotels, whereas Army get to sort of sleep under hoochies in the dirt. So it sounds like your experience was perhaps more on the pleasant side. I know we'll talk about it later, but with my son being in the, in the Army, that's a constant uh, source of banter. I can well imagine. So indeed, you talk about your son, you just mentioned him. So that's very interesting, isn't it? Is that in your family, there has been such a a military history that goes back not just to the Second World War, but with your own service and now your son. So tell us a bit about how his decision came about or what he told you with regard to his decision to join the Australian Army once you'd migrated over here to Australia. What I would say about my son, and I've told it to him many times, is he was either going to be really good or really bad. He went through a few challenges early on in high school and for whatever reason he managed to sort all those out pretty much on his own and he did uh, during that time he joined the cadets. What he told me was that he wasn't going to join the Air Force because that's what dad did so he was happy to try the Navy or the Army but he did that all on his own volition and uh, it all went from there. So did you have much say in what he ended up choosing to do or was he very much, you know, was it his decision and was he clear about where he wanted to go? I did steer him towards engineering. So he did join the Defence Academy as an engineer, but I think two or three years in he decided it wasn't for him and went into the inventory side, which is yeah, his choice, perfectly good. And in hindsight, it was probably more me you know, just giving guidance rather than looking what his particular skill set is. So tell us a bit about that experience of being the father of someone who's currently serving and indeed currently deployed in the Middle Eastern area of operations, but also having that connection to your other ancestry. How does that leave you feeling about the military tradition that is clearly quite important to you and is so obvious and prevalent in your own family? Well, first and foremost, I'm immensely proud of my son. He's cut his own path. He's immensely loyal and got fantastic traits that I can see coming out and he's his own man. Serving overseas, he's... I don't know exactly what he's doing overseas and I don't know exactly where he's located, but I do know that he'll be doing the best he possibly can and doing it well. Because indeed, there's a lot of discussion about the importance of the Anzac connection, you know, Australia and New Zealand going back to the Great War. What's interesting listening to your family history is that your family really does epitomise that. I wouldn't say sure. Uh, Like there was certainly a gap with my dad being younger than his other brothers that served. But it was interesting when you grow up in a small town, I think back to being a 12-year-old boy, it was nothing to be sitting in the pub with your older uncles and having a few beers and listening to their various stories or probably more so listening to the backstory from your father, well, my father, just uh, going through the various experiences that they had. And I did mention before that two of my uncles had lost their eyes, one eye each, I should say, so two eyes between two, one to infection and one to shrapnel while serving overseas. What I got from that is that it affected 
maybe it was the physical aspect pulling up, but I certainly picked up later there was a lot more of the mental aspects where you get the nightmares or you get them not being able to function very well. My dad didn't tell me till quite later on in life that his brothers weren't so good on the farm. It took them a few months or certainly over a year to recover, to be functional working on the farm. So I think that there was a lot hidden in those years, whereas now that you, you see how people are catered for, or, or certainly on the mental aspects, a lot more recognition, a lot more support, I'm not so sure that was the case back then. With that in mind, I mean, your own experience then and the fact that you're now the father of somebody who's serving, what are your thoughts about care for veterans? I mean, is this something that is of interest and concern to you? Oh, absolutely. I'm a supporter of Soldier On. I think it's to, it's a worthy cause. In fact, I'm always su- well, I'm surprised that it hasn't been around for longer than it has. And I'm very conscious of, well, I'm immensely proud of Alan, our son, I think of the wife that he's got here in Australia and uh, the wider community. And I certainly want to make sure that those people who do serve come back and are looked after. And you mentioned earlier about the stories of your uncles. And clearly, given those stories have carried down the generations in your family, it's something which has had a, a deep and lasting impact. In terms of how your own family has dealt with that sort of intergenerational impact of war, what do you think is perhaps a key learning for the current and indeed the next generation? What I think happened in the earlier generations is they had real community and real support. Certainly that's the case in a small town. I'm not so sure when you have veterans come back to suburban areas or separated from their core family unit. I think that's the concern, is that they don't have that close connection with someone to just basically tell it like it is. And with regard to your own career, I mean, obviously, you know, you have to tell us a little bit more about what you're doing now, but what now have you moved on to do in your professional life? You talked about serving in the New Zealand Defence Force for 22 years. So how have you managed to use those skills in your new civilian career? Uh, It was a relatively easy step for me because I'd spent so much time on P3 Orions. In fact, my work brought me to Australia from New Zealand, where we put under the New Zealand Ministry of Defence, we put new wings and structure on the New Zealand P3s and made them last another 20 years. Well, at least that's, that was what they were quoted to do. Our young family had been here for five years and it was just a natural progression to uh, move into civilian life in another P3 role for the Australian Defence Force. I joined a company called Raytheon to do some work there, who then turned into L3 Communications, who then turned into Tenex. But essentially I did the same job under those companies. And so, yeah, I've had a, a effectively a very long, I would say, successful in my mind, uh, career uh, working on P3s for a number of years, including moving to Adelaide after being in both Sydney and Melbourne. And now you know, working for Babcock in a, still in the defence industry. There's lots of discussion in the public domain in Australia and in New Zealand about transitioning from military service into civilian life. You've obviously managed to do that successfully. How did you do it? The work that I was doing was very similar to what I was doing in the the military. And the role that I had in the the military, certainly for my last five years, was more about contractor representative. So I was basically the the face of the Ministry of Defence on the ground with our P3s getting modified. I really had a foot in both camps during those last five years. Really, all I did was just swap the foot on the other side, still working on military aircraft, but uh, on the civilian side. So it was easy for me. 
What's different though about that? Because clearly, although you are doing similar work as you mm. describe, the fact is you're now working in a civilian defence company. How does that differ from actually being part of the defence force and doing a similar type of occupation? I think it's changed a lot over the years. What I remember in the defence is that camaraderie where you'd have a few drinks on a Friday night and um, you know, you'd be able to ride your push bike home to a married quarter or the like. It's not the same now. A lot of the messes now are civilianised and there's drink driving and all those other types of things. So I think they've lost some of that. On the civilian side, they do run social groups and the like, but effectively you congregate with a, a bunch of like-minded people that you know, there are still a lot of ex-defence people in civilian industry and you do have a connection there with making sure that you, you look after each other and have a few drinks and a few laughs at the end of the, the week where you can. Do you feel very much that you still identify with having served? Is that very much part of your identity still? That's part of who I am. I definitely I have no regrets and, and I'm very grateful for the, for the time that I have in the military gave me fantastic opportunities that I would never have had otherwise. So yeah, I do speak positively of my defence experience. And perhaps for you know the next generation coming through that might be interested in, in getting into engineering, particularly avionics, yeah. given that there is that perception that it's quite difficult to get into, it's very competitive, what would your message be to them? Have a goal and, and work towards it. If someone from Wirral can go in and do a, um, aeronautical training than anyone can. It's just a matter of being persistent. In my case, I, I didn't get what I wanted the first year that I applied. I, I had to come back a second year. And yeah, there's always been challenges and, and knocks associated with it, but I would certainly recommend it as a fantastic grounding for any other future career that you would have outside of defence. Dean Bretherton, thank you very much for sharing with us your insights and for talking to us about your family history. Thank you very much. And for the next conversation, Sharon spoke with Captain Alan Bretherton, who is currently serving on operations in the Middle East with the Australian Army as the Deputy Plans Officer for Joint Task Force 633. He's also serving as the Gender Advisor to the Commander of JTF 633, Major General Susan Coyle. Alan spoke to Sharon about his career to date, his deployment so far in the Middle East, and what it's like to be an officer in today's Australian Army. Alan, welcome to Life on the Line. Thanks for having me. So, Alan, just to kick things off, tell us a bit about your family background from your perspective. We've already heard from your dad. What are your memories of your childhood? We've got a strong New Zealand background, dad being from Wairau and mum being from Walkworth in New Zealand. So I sort of spent the first seven years of my life over there between, I suppose, Palmerston North and then Blenheim down south before moving over. To be honest, I was so young then, I don't really have many memories except for um, being down in Blenheim and then running around the orchards and stuff. I think it was probably the first time that I really had much exposure to defence though because back then they still had like space A travel where you could get on the Herx and I still remember flying in those cargo net seats and I also remember going to the mess and, and all that sort of thing because obviously that was New Zealand Air Force. But then yeah, posting over to Australia, uh, we spent time in Sydney and Melbourne before I think he left and then, or left in Melbourne, moved across to Adelaide and finished my schooling. A lot of my childhood was probably spent outside, especially in the young years. Mum will still recount me walking to school uh, in winter in New Zealand in shorts and a t-shirt. 
which I can't remember too fondly, but I think I'd struggle with the cold now. I'm trying to detect a New Zealand accent there, Alan, and I can't really hear one. So I suppose an interesting thing for us to talk about at the start of our interview today for Life on the Line is how much do you feel like you're a New Zealander and how Australian do you feel? Uh, Yeah, that's true. I mean, certainly when I went home last, I got called an ocker, which was uh, interesting. But then also each time I come back from New Zealand, like we used to travel home quite frequently. And certainly one of the, the fondest memories I ever remember going back to New Zealand is... We got the opportunity to go to the RSL one year with Dad and Pop, which was quite special. But I think the turning point was probably maybe 21, which is about the time I realised seven years in New Zealand, 14 years in Australia, sort of a two-thirds versus one-third sort of difference. But you can never really let go of your roots. And I think the fact that it's called Anzac Day and it's Australia and New Zealand, and I think that the countries are so tight, it's, um, it's a combination of both. I can't, I can't really say I'm one or the other, but I'm just strongly committed to both. Because that's an interesting point. I mean, we had obviously our our annual Anzac Day commemorations the other month now. What is that experience like for you each year? I mean, do you really identify then perhaps even more strongly with the Anzac legend, with the Anzac narrative, given that you have got that close connection with both Australia and New Zealand? Never really had the insight to be able to compare to somebody that, um, that doesn't, I guess. But I think more so Anzac Day becomes more important once you you join and you serve whether or not that's deployed or not it's still when you're serving and you've got that day to recognize what people have done before and what you've signed up to potentially do I think that's when it starts to really mean something and I mean this year doing it overseas again probably in one word it's just pride that's that's what you feel once you've done that I know myself, I was on operations for Anzac Day in Iraq back in 2017, and it was quite an incredible experience to be part of that. What's it been like for you this year being in the Middle East on Anzac Day? It's been a bit different. I don't think we, we can avoid the fact that COVID's had a, had a bit of an impact, so we were spaced out, but we still had the typical dawn service. It's interesting that it's five hours later, so Australia's done it, and they've done it at the end of their drive this year, and we've done it here, but I think it's still has that same effect, maybe even more so being here, but it's sort of hard to describe how that is. So returning back to those early days when you were perhaps preparing to start your military journey yourself, tell us a bit about why it was that you decided to go into a career with the Australian Army. What led to your decision to go to the Australian Defence Force Academy where you studied and indeed to go down the Army route? I think the defence influence was quite strong through Dad. Experiencing that in my younger years whilst growing up had quite a strong impact. As much as I can't really pinpoint the single location where I was like, defence is what I want to do. I just remember ever since I was young, growing up outside, defence was what I wanted to do. Uh, Sort of when I got to high school, I ended up joining Air Force Cadets for a little bit. And that was good. That was interesting. That was at the RAF base close by, so down at RAF Edinburgh at the time. And that certainly strengthened it, the fact that I wanted to go to the defense force but i don't know maybe lack of interest in planes or something it just it drove me more towards army i just liked the more hands-on the more outdoor side i mean dad worked as primarily a technician and then on the p3s so he sort of had an engineering background and i think that drove me down towards engineering as well especially given i did quite well at maths and physics and that sort of stuff at high school so applying to get a degree and be an engineer in the military seemed the best way to do it and Adfer provided that gateway what do you remember about the time when you got accepted to go to ADFA? Was that a real turning point for you? Was there a lot of excitement given that you must have been a teenager at the time? Yeah, definitely. I think uh, I found out, I'm pretty sure I found out on the 15th of December, so like a week after my birthday, which was quite late too because then it was just starting the next year in January. 
it was exciting. And then it's it's the first time away from home too, right? As much as it is in Defence Force Academy environment, so that's all exciting. And then the military training. Potentially cadets had prepared me for it a little bit more, but I think it was coupled with that excitement of leaving school. But then maybe, I don't know if it's relief or something, but knowing that you had a job, you had something to do. Biggest thing for me is I think everybody wants some sort of purpose in what they're going to do, what they're going to study. And I think regardless of what I was studying, getting into defence certainly gave me that purpose. What was it like then being at ADFA? Because obviously everyone's experience is different. So what was your experience? I thoroughly enjoyed it and I'd highly recommend it to anybody. The engineering side was hard and unfortunately I didn't do too well on that end. That's on me more than anybody else. But the social aspect, the ability to learn. So we were spending our semester breaks out doing military training or army field training and What's funny is that rather than be sad about missing a break, I was excited to actually do some of the stuff and some of the things you got to learn, like learning how to shoot and then using high explosive weapons and all that sort of stuff, which my school friends at that stage, none of them were doing that. They were trying to find temporary jobs to to fill the gap and pay their way through uni, whereas I was uh, having the best time of life with a whole bunch of new friends, started playing rugby and yeah, thoroughly enjoyed it. So how did you shape up on the rugby field then if you hadn't done it before? Uh, I'd like to think because I'm originally a Kiwi, I'm a natural, but uh, I can probably say that wasn't the case. I think having the group there, like it didn't really matter. It was almost like military training side of it again as well, like because you get out on the pitch and it was a bit physical. Everybody got behind each other and spurned each other on. And I anticipate that you're still in touch with many of the people that you shared that experience with today. They become part of your your cohort in the army. Yeah, definitely. It's funny. I was talking to somebody the other day about this, about like military relationships versus some of your civilian friends. And I think once you know somebody in the military and then you run into them again, you just sort of pick up where you left off. And all those relationships, they don't need constant maintenance because people get that you're busy and you're away. And then you crack on when you run into each other again, whether or not it's a course or a posting or something like that. And it's certainly very much like that, like people across all services now. I mean, when we get forward to it later, being on the ship and to RAR and you run into some of the Navy guys that you, you played rugby with at the college and you just sort of, oh, sorry, not at the college, at the academy. And then you just sort of, you pick up where you left off which is, uh, yeah, it's nice being able to post anywhere and not necessarily know who's there, but you know you're going to have friends there somewhere. So tell us how you came to be in the infantry. Was that your choice or was it chosen for you? Definitely my choice, but I can't say it was completely my choice. And, and by that, I mean, like, once you, you go through the academy or you join to the Royal Military College Direct, there's a, an order of merit that you obviously compete for as well as your, your performance outfield and various other things. So you put in your preferences and then the staff select based on your performances. I'd sort of left ADFA not really willing or wanting to finish engineering. I sort of knew I wanted to go to infantry. I think it was largely spurned by the fact that I, uh, I really enjoyed the field phases and I wanted to do something more physical, more challenging. I just saw that being infantry at the time. And what was your first posting once you left the Defence Force Academy as an infantry officer? So what's interesting is that rather than post to a regiment first, I actually posted to the School of Infantry. I spent time there. The first part of it was largely spent doing my courses, so my regimental officer's basic course and my, my range qualification courses. And then I spent time as a platoon commander in one of the training platoons running the IETs or the initial employment training, basically the people that come out of Kapuka and then do their infantry qualifications before going to a regiment. It was an interesting first posting. I went there with three other guys direct from the college just for a year. And then I think I ran two courses while I was there. 
One of them was actually the um, some of the direct entry commando guys. So trying to keep up with them was, uh, was a challenge at times. Some of them were quite fit. And one of your early postings early on in your career was to the 2nd Battalion, the Royal Australian Regiment, known as 2RAR. And what's interesting about 2RAR, of course, is that within the Army as a whole, they've uh, distinguished themselves as taking the lead in terms of amphibious operations, that whole interface between Army and Navy. So tell us a bit about how that played out for you. I mean, that must have been a, a, a real sort of learning curve and, a, and an opportunity to learn something very different. So I certainly got to experience some of that in its early years, which was quite interesting. So when I left the School of Infantry, hosted across there into Alpha Company first. I spent that year doing a, a company warfighter exercise as well as the major exercise for that year, I think was Hamill trying to remember back but then the second year is when it really started to kick off in terms of some of the the amphibious training and that was uh we started the year with a a 10-week amphibious development training or amphibious lead-up training which was excellent we sort of went week there was a diagnostic week and then there was a section week and there was a section live fire week platoon week platoon live fire and that's some of the uh some of the best ranges i think i've ever been on i remember quite distinctly the company one we had uh three days live ammunition did sort of three consecutive platoon attacks company attack company defense and then withdrawal with labs and heavy weapons mortars uh, artillery all that and support that was excellent and then moved out of the platoon later that year to town headquarters into the upsell then we went on the the hms canberra workup first which was an interesting sort of two-week shakeout as to how we would operate on the ship then I had to go on captain's course and then coming back from that straight into c-series which was sort of six weeks of uh, developmental program of how we were going to do the amphibious maneuver doing our, our reconnaissance some raids some hodr general life living on the ship and adjusting to what that meant again Certainly quite interesting in the young stages. We had um, both US and UK mentors there. And I mean, each of them have got a a developed capacity in their own right. And Australia's obviously trying to learn from them, but then we're we're a different military again. So it was was all very interesting in terms of how we were doing it, what it meant. And it meant changes for, I suppose, not just us, but the Navy as well. The Air Force, which is now on board, incorporating some elements into FICO and that sort of stuff. You also became a specialist in mortars. I mean, that's quite a difference there, isn't it? Going from amphibious operations to be working with mortars. What was it about that that particularly kind of drew you in? Within the, the infantry battalion, there's um, support company, which will typically have four specialist skill sets. You've got mortars, reconnaissance and snipers, signals, heavy weapons, and then some have pioneers slash small boats, which is what 2RR has sort of gone to. So at that time, 2RR still had all of those elements. I just wasn't in support company. I ended up posting on promotion from 2RR to 5RR. I moved into the position of XO slash 2RC support company. And that's sort of the first time I'd really worked within the, the support company uh, environment. Mortars is a bit different from the other two in the fact that um, the platoon commander of mortars, because he actually sits in the joint fire and effects coordination cell when you deploy upfield, is actually a captain, whereas the rest of the support companies are commanded by a lieutenant. I sort of stuck my hand up when I got there, recognising that there was no, I suppose the position's 8-9, but no mortar platoon commander, and just said, if you put me on the courses, I'd be happy to do that. I was lucky enough to get the courses that year and, and fulfil the role for the rest of that year and then into the next. I really enjoyed that. That's probably the most rewarding job I've done so far in defence without speaking too early. But you sort of, as a captain, you've learned enough from your lieutenant years. You're now more experienced as a, as a platoon commander, had their specialist skills and got to work with maybe some of the more senior soldiers and certainly some of the more senior um, NCOs. 
especially like my platoon side in that year was uh, was all over and he was certainly a good firm steady hand to be able to, to guide me into what needed to happen. I remember my OC, we ran support courses down the opposite end of the country that year. We sort of uh, went from Darwin to Coltana and sort of went down there, set it up with the, the heavy weapons and the mortars courses running. And my OC was like, all right, over to you. And uh, got to take care of the uh, 150 so personnel down there on courses and then back to Darwin. For people listening to today's podcast who've not perhaps had that experience of being around mortars and, and heavy weapons and the like, what's it actually like when a mortar goes off next to you? Can you describe it? My artillery viewers will love this one, but it's not as bad as going for next to a 155. I think it's like any weapon system you learn. Like when you start with the, the style and you're, you're starting your training and you're a bit worried and nervous and shoot it a couple of times, you get more comfortable, more comfortable. It's the same with the mortar. Once you learn the drills, you've done the drills. When you're operating one of those, you typically work in a team of three and each person's got their responsibility. So once you've done the drills with them, you know they know what they're doing. All you're doing is either aligning it, preparing the rounds or dropping the bomb. And once it goes off, it just, I suppose it becomes a drill. And then with regard to your career developments, you then moved on to headquarters job, Joint Operations Commands. What can you tell us about the experience of working in that higher headquarters? A lot higher level than what I was used to. It's very interesting working with the other services as well, because this is the first time, apart from the amphibious experience, it's the first time in my career I'd really worked closely with the other services. The struggles or the difficulty I really had there was probably adjusting the shift work and then sort of maintaining that that 24-7 watch. But it, it was tough. And I say, th- thankfully, I only did a year there, more so because of the shift work than anything else. But while I was there, I did have good mentorship by those above me. So that was quite helpful. And last year, you deployed on Talisman Sabre, which is very much the kind of leading edge, full-scale exercise that Australia is involved in. You talk about working across all three services. I mean, that's a case in point where you literally have Army, Navy, Air Force, and we also have a number of international partners involved in that as well. What's the experience of being on exercise on Talisman Sabre actually like? Yeah, so I'll throw another curveball in there to start as well. So obviously we've got reserve brigades as well, and then we sort of partner with them when they come out as well. That throws another, call it complexity in there, but not necessarily a bad one, just the fact that uh, you're now incorporating an element that you don't necessarily train with all the time. TS is always, always interesting. I mean, this year, or sorry, last year, I deployed in a role that was maybe a bit different to what I was normally used to. Working in the personnel cell, the purse cell within Brigade, I went out as the purse planner and responsible for mortuary fares and personnel tracking and that casually backload, tracking the personnel as, as they move across the battlefield. That was really interesting and different. I found myself sort of naturally drawn across to the plan cell where did a lot of the planning for, for the operations and trying to sequence and synchronise those. Now, when you're talking about synchronising Army, Navy, Air Force across a battlefield now, add the complexity of other nations which are on different systems and then reserves who haven't necessarily done the lead-up training and it becomes quite a complex piece that I suppose rehearsals and stuff become quite important for. But the relationships and the ability to develop those sort of working behaviours is invaluable on those exercises and I think we, uh, we did that quite well. 
because I think for people listening to today's podcast, they probably might remember back to two years ago when there was Talisman Sabre 2018. And there was that incredible drone footage where they had the amphibious assaults, the landings, and it was this sweeping kind of shots of the beach and, and you could see the kind of landing craft and then you could see the troops dismounting and then assaulting up the beach. And it was quite incredible footage. But I suppose the question is, is that might be what we see publicly, but what's the reality? of actually being involved in something that's on that scale. That is the end state of what is a lot of planning and synchronization and rehearsals. To get something like that right, it's quite difficult to do without the detailed plan in the background and then also the rehearsals just to make sure it goes right. Going back to my time at tour, I remember the first time we did a beach landing and we'd set it up and we'd drawn the overlay like we would for an army overlay and we had this line of departure, which was where you'd hit that line and approach straight to the beach and do the landing. What we'd failed to do is convert the language that we had across to the Navy language. So the guy driving the boat saw it and then turned 90 degrees thinking he was meant to follow it like a bearing line and went alongside the beach. And that was sort of like one of those moments like, oh, we all knew what it meant, but we failed to communicate it correctly. So it's sort of, uh, I think there's a lot of integration and rehearsals that needs to go into that sort of stuff. That's really interesting, isn't it? So you talk there really about how there is actually a different language for the different services. And I think people outside of the military perhaps wouldn't appreciate that. Oh, even different different nations too. We're doing this stuff as part of a coalition. We've got the UK, which may be a bit more closely aligned to us. And then we've got the US, which have got a different language again, and then potentially any other nation as well. So not to mention the systems that we're trying to talk to them on and then communicate the product that we typically use to communicate a plan into some of the stuff that they use. So that's, I suppose, why we do these exercises, why we do this training is to make sure that we could do it. Now, as we're talking today, you're currently deployed in the Middle East on Operation Accordion. Tell us a bit about how this deployment came about for you, because obviously for many people serving in the military, having the opportunity to deploy, it's really the pinnacle. It's what the job is all about. So what was the experience like for you in the lead up to, to being where you are now? It's been hard. If you take out the four years from training between ADFA and RMC, it's sort of been seven years waiting for a deployment. It's largely affected by what's happening and what's needed, but also availability and jobs at home and, and balance requirements. This deployment came about because whilst I was at Joint Operations Command, I had fought to get on the Joint Operations Planning Course. And while I was there, I ended up getting a brief on gender and military operations. And like anybody walking into that, I think seeing the title, like, oh, we're going to talk about this. What is it going to be? And the person that came in and talked about it talked about the UN Security Council resolutions, how we're incorporating a more holistic view of operations, how operations can affect enduring peace. It was actually quite interesting. I remember talking to somebody afterwards. I'm like, uh, what's the course? How do I get on it? So I was lucky enough to do that that year as well. And then ended up posting up to one brigade where they needed to find somebody to fill this position, which had the requirement for the joint plans experience, as well as the gender advisor piece. And thankfully, due to the work, both... I suppose, in 2RIR doing some of that joint stuff, Joint Operations Command, and then, and then the courses that asked for me to do this job. And then in the lead up, I sort of did the administration and that that I needed to towards the end of 2019 before deploying in January. And when you landed, when you actually arrived, was it what you expected? I'm going to say no straight off the bat. And the reason why is because it was actually really wet the day that I arrived. And I thought, how could we get so much water in the middle of the desert? And I think a couple of weeks later, it actually hailed too, which it was just completely bizarre. But in terms of the job, plans is a very difficult one because I suppose you can always plan things, but they never necessarily come to eventuation like current ops. So it, it was sort of, I knew 
what we would roughly be planning. And I knew there was a lot of stuff going on at the time. So it was sort of what I expected in that regard. But then in terms of the interactions between NATO or Supreme Headquarters Allied Powers Europe and Naples, some of those those headquarters as well as you've got the US with Op Inherent Resolve and US CENTCOM. And then we've got our relationships back to the strategic center. Like I think it really opened my eyes to that level that I've never really been exposed to before. Being on the ground there, do you have a sense that you're part of something so much bigger than before in terms of being part of that international coalition? Yeah, definitely. It's what everybody looks forward to like when they join. You've trained so long for it and now you're here making a contribution. I mean, hopefully for me, like I, I think once again, I just go back to that, that one word, like pride. Like that's that's what it is, pride to be able to, to serve your country, to contribute, to contribute to or contribute with other nations that are on a, of a similar desire to be able to, to make the world a better place. And I think just as I suppose a bit of an aside there, like in terms of the future, like staying in or out of defense, I think leaving maybe one of the hardest things would be finding something with as as much purpose well i appreciate obviously also that for operational security reasons there's specifics you can't tell us about but i think that for people listening to this they will have seen in the news about some of the developments that have happened in the middle east in recent months particularly the rocket attacks on taji and iraq the fact there have been heightened tensions at times the fact we've now had the outbreak of covid so for you actually being there on the ground you know what's the reality of doing business amid that kind of changing and uncertain uh, situation some of the changes like when we talk about the rocket attacks and all that sort of stuff is defense does a very good job of preparing you for the unknown and being resilient and being adaptable so when that sort of stuff happened we started planning like we normally would like what are we going to do about it what can we do about it how are we going to do it and making what needed to happen happen in terms of covid yeah that's made things difficult i mean apart from the fact that uh, guys lose rest and recreation here I think it's actually maybe potentially hit home a bit more. And I mean, with with my wife back home, she had plans for family and various other things for her birthday and stuff. And going into isolation there whilst the other half's away is not necessarily the the easiest to deal with. It's potentially more for them that are the unsung heroes of those that are deployed. You mentioned rest and respite because obviously that's part of the experience of deploying overseas in the current day that you sometimes have that opportunity to take a few days out elsewhere. And I imagine that with COVID, that opportunity is obviously not available to the men and women who are deployed currently in the Middle East. Yeah, the general view of that, or at least mine anyway, is like, oh yeah, it sucks, but oh well, we just crack on. Duty first, dare I say. Now, one of your roles in the Middle East at the moment as part of your deployment is to be the gender advisor to Major General Susan Coyle, who's the commander there at JTF 633. The role itself is is a specialist advisor. And what it is, it's really considering a gender perspective in everything we do for operations. And I, I suppose the difference is some people will say we consider that as part of our normal business and that, but this is really a deliberate effort to consider it because of failing to do so. And, and this history shows us like the statistics when we do incorporate it help with enduring longer lasting peace. People look at it and think it's purely just for women and girls, but it's also men and boys. And to be honest, in some of these places, they're quite harshly affected as well without going into the, the specifics on that sort of stuff. We sort of consider how looking at four areas, so the participation, prevention, protection, and then the relief and recovery. And if we look at the military whilst they're conducting military operations, we have a, a large capacity to be able to show the participation and incorporate the areas in which we need to, to consider a more holistic view, as well as that protection side before we obviously move into 
It's called post-conflict or post-violence relief and recovery efforts, which have other considerations. Can you give us perhaps a strong example? You talk about how this is still, to some extent, an emerging area in militaries globally. What's a good example of where this particular way of thinking about conflict has not historically been factored in with a result that our audience for this podcast would instantly identify with? Yeah, so the example I always remember, and I wasn't there for it, it was, it was briefed on my course, the bridge at, uh, I can't pronounce it, Kurara, Kurara. What had happened is as part of the military operations that had been required to blow up or destroy the bridge so that it could stop people transiting across it, which were causing a bit of uh, issues to the operations. They got that approved, they destroyed the bridge with the intent to rebuild, of course, because you can't leave it destroyed permanently, you need to rebuild, allow the population to recommence the normal life. So when they rebuilt, they built this new fancy bridge based on what they'd got from speaking to the village and the village elders. And this bridge was great for vehicle traffic, but didn't have a footbridge. Now, the reason why this became an issue is because what they found is the women and the children which were transiting to go to the markets couldn't actually cross the bridge while the the vehicles were going across it because it was too dangerous. So they were trying to cross under the high-flowing stream underneath and a lot of them were drowning. So I suppose the lesson there is the failure to engage the full population and understand the, the impacts of our operations on them as well as them on our operations caused this unnecessary loss of life. There's also similar examples in terms of there was another village where they built a well for the population because they found out that the women were walking about five kilometres to and from to get water each day. But what happened is this well kept getting destroyed. And what they thought is that oh, people are destroying it because they don't want the village to prosper or they don't want this. What's happened is the women themselves are actually destroying it because that opportunity to walk to and from to get water each day was their opportunity to socialise between themselves and get out of the house. So it's a bit of that holistic engagement and consideration that we're trying to provide. And the key term Australian Defence Forces is using is mainstreaming. So we deliberately consider it and appoint people to consider it now until it becomes mainstreamed, in which case everybody does it normally. That's really where we're trying to look in the future. So given your current deployment in the Middle East, having this new way of thinking about conflict, how has it changed your thinking, the education and obviously this involvement you now have in this area of gender, peace and security? My predecessor certainly has been the um, biggest guiding force I've had here. He had a lot of background in international humanitarian law and especially conflict-related sexual violence and stuff. So he's probably the one that I turn to most for advice. But in terms of me personally, I think when you go through and you do the infantry training and you learn very much at the tactical level how to outmaneuver an enemy, through my exposure both at Joint Operations Command and then here, it's very much starting to think now at the operational almost strategic level as to well, what's the, the outlying impacts once the conflict's over or in the next phase and how do we make this place a more lasting peace? And I think this is my understanding. I haven't seen it typically written anywhere, but when we talk about national power, we talk about dimes, so diplomatic, informational, military and economic. I think what this holistic consideration of gender really tries to do is apply a more sort of informational, diplomatic, economic approach so that we don't have to use the military option as much. So thinking ahead now to the fact you still have a few weeks or even months to go on your deployments, there's obviously been changes to your thinking already. Do you expect to come back a changed man? Any experience in life is going to change you. And I think this one certainly will for the better Maybe I think by the time I get back, it'll be handy to have a break and see my wife. But it's hard to say what the change will be without being home to experience it. Potentially more resilient, more knowledgeable. 
there's things I want to do whilst I'm deployed, books I want to read, continue with certain other educational studies and just that way at least at the end of the six months between this job and then some of the stuff I've read because we don't have the same stuff at the uh, same time at home, I should be a more well-rounded, developed individual. It sounds like it's inspired you being away on operations. It certainly has. And dare I say, I, I don't think my wife's going to appreciate this one too much, but hopefully it's not my last. I have thoroughly enjoyed it. And I think there's nothing that can really replicate the feeling of pride that you get when you get to serve your country overseas. Alan Bretherton, thank you for what you're doing in the Middle East right now. And thank you for sharing your experiences and your military career with us here on Life on the Line. Thank you very much. This is Sharon Maskeldare, and you've been listening to Life on the Line. In her chat with Alan, Sharon mentioned her experience of an Anzac Day in Iraq. To hear her story of service, go back to Season 3 and listen to my interview with her, Number 45, Dr. Sharon Maskeldare. Everyone who deploys, who has a family knows, it's a reality that you are away from the people that you love. Follow this podcast at Life on the Line Podcast on Facebook and Instagram and at LOTLpod on Twitter. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com and you can email us at podcast at lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Subscribe in your podcast app of choice, Spotify, YouTube, or through our website to never miss an episode. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget.